Today, we have the absolute pleasure of welcoming an amazing innovator, enthusiastic leader in our industry. He's always willing to jump in and help wherever he's needed. He actually volunteers before we even know the need sometimes. He's so uh, aggressive in helping the industry. Aaron is the co-chair of the HIT Advisory Committee for the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, or as we always call it, ONC. He's an active member of the Chime Public Policy Steering Committee as well, one of our wonderful faculty members for Chime University, a frequent industry speaker. He holds the fellow status in Chime as well as the board certification, Certified Healthcare Chief Information Officer. If that's not enough, he's always serving on boards out in our community to serve us as well. Additionally, he's been an active part of our national interoperability efforts with board positions on both the Sequoia Project as well as the Commonwealth Health Alliance. Absolutely amazing. We're thrilled to welcome Aaron Mary, the Chief Information Officer, and a couple other titles that we'll find out along the way uh, at the University of Texas at Austin, Dell Medical School, and UT Health. Aaron, welcome to the program. And before I even let you respond, I'll just get the first one in, hook them horns. Hook them, Russ. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Well, Aaron, you know, it's it's been a tough 18 months. I started doing the math the other day, and we're right about the 18-month point since this really came kind of lockdown COVID thing. How are you? How's the family doing? How's the team holding up? And just love to hear how you're doing. I appreciate the question. So the team is, is resilient and remarkable. Uh, the clinical staff, they are understandably exhausted. We are closely watching for any signs of, of any kind of mental anguish or issues there. We have set up multiple triage phone lines, assistant programs, uh, employee assistant programs, so that folks can reach out when they feel overwhelmed. I'll tell you, that's the biggest issue right now facing, I think all clinicians, all of healthcare is burnout. Does this sustain, how long can you sustain being in the eye of the hurricane? And uh, from an IT perspective, it's our job to keep, you know, right there with them, keep pace. If you think of the battlefield, you know, they're on the front lines, we're running the supplies behind them, right? Bringing them supplies, bringing them ammo, bringing them med kits, whatever it needs. That's where we're at. And so our team is just as exhausted. So trying to get in there, find ways of alleviating the, the tension, giving folks outlets, being there for folks. Personally, family's doing good. I think uh, here in Texas, we're a little bit less restricted than some of the other states. So the kids have gone back to school. Uh, of course, anxious times because we're still before a uh, vaccine is ready for the for, for pediatric population. But beyond it all in all, healthcare is tremendously resilient and, and we are looking forward to the day we're through this nightmare. Wow. Well, obviously, and, and I say it out of complete and total admittance of bias, that you are at a great organization, the University of Texas, which happens to be where I went to school, just out of pure transparency for everyone on the program. But uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about how you got to this point. Kind of what was your journey? Because everybody's journey seems to be different in health IT, especially to the role of CIO. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one of the interesting questions we get at boot camp every single time uh, as faculty members is how did you become a CIO, right? Usually you've got a phenomenal complexion of folks in all different stages of their career um, that have one day this aspiration to one day be CIO. So first is, do you even know what a CIO does and how impactful it is? And the person I have to give full credit that opened my eyes really early on is a legendary CIO named Pam McNutt, a CIO for Methodist Health System, just a true legend in legends. And she actually helped guide me and, and open my eyes as to what the opportunity and, the, and the, the power that a CIO has to really be a game changer. 
And so getting to this role has been that, it's been lessons of volunteering for the projects that are some of the most difficult out there. Some of the crazy things you get, uh, which is like, you know, I don't know, bring back the Longhorn football team last fall, right? Or, and those sorts of things that come at you and having a never, never say die attitude. And, and while you've alluded to it with sort of the University of Texas persona, right? Which is what starts here changes the world. The reality is to get into the seat of being a CIO, your mindset must be, I wanna be a change maker. I wanna enable the clinician. I wanna enable the patient. I want to provide the tools and my expertise and the wherewithal to get it done. And so where rubber meets the road is the is the IT department, is that CIO seat. And so as you, Russ, have, have eloquated about the, the CIO 3.0, are you the digital business enabler? Are you the person the board turns to and calls and they have a question or an issue or whatever it may be? If you're that person, then great. You, you are in the right seat, ready to rock and roll. If you're not that person, you may want to take a hard look in the mirror. The reality of it is, is that that's what it was for me. I worked my way up. I worked hard. I had some great mentors like Pam and others along the way of my career. I still reach out to them because you never know it all. But to the degree of it, it's that. It's, it's making things happen, executing very well, and making sure at the end of the day, you're making a difference. Well, talk about being a change agent. You've been involved with uh, one of those initiatives now for, I think, probably going on five or six years, and that's the work with ONC and in particular the Health Advisory Committee. And now, even more so in a position of leadership, you get to see this firsthand in that uh, somewhat chaotic place we call Washington, D.C., but you've got <laughs> such a unique position to really see kind of the the big macro level of things, even when they're just a twinkle in somebody's eye in the public policy ecosystem. First of all, there are people out there that don't even know that the Health IT Advisory Committee exists. So what is it? What does it do? Kind of how does it create the, the, the real top issues it wants to address? Yeah, great question. So in fact, the, the Health IT Committee spawned from two other ones that came out of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. The two original committees that were there were the Health IT Policy Committee and the Health IT Standards Committee. The policy committee was exactly that. At the time, talking about meaningful use, talking about how are we going to get all this reimbursement doled out to the hospitals? How are we going to measure from a quality perspective? And then, of course, with MIPS, MAPRA, and then beyond, what's going to happen there you know, from either rulemaking or legislatively? Standards committee was, how do I make these systems talk to each other? How do I make my electronic medical record and all these ancillary systems actually communicate in a meaningful way that makes sense? Well, then comes along 21st Century Cures, which was signed into law around 2015. And they're like, why are there two committees? Collapse into one and then streamline it so that it's all in one. And we, being Congress, can turn to one body of folks and say, hey, experts, tell us what we don't know. That is the Health IT Advisory Committee. It is a blend of policy. It is a blend of standards. So you have both technical, you have rulemaking. And it is, the, it is the, uh, the body of folks that are appointed by either Congress, uh, the GAO, uh, the administration, and, and the secretary to come around table and talk through all things, patient, physician, clinician, provider, vendor, and payer. And what we do is go through all of the different charges of the Office of National Coordinator from interoperability to privacy and security, public health, and work through the different facets of this is what needs to happen, this is what needs to get better, this is what's completely broken and needs to be addressed, or hey, this is going okay, leave it alone and make it better down the road. 
as you can imagine, our focus in the past 18 months has really turned into more towards public health response. How do we deal with the fact there's not a unique patient identifier? How do we deal with the fact that public health systems still rely on fax machines? How do we deal with these things? That's where the high tech has been focused on. From a leadership perspective, the reason why I was appointed to co-chair uh, this past January was very simple. I take the same approach I take in my CIO job to the high tech. Let's get it done, right? Enough talk. I don't want bureaucracy. It is Washington DC and, and, and love them to death, you know, a lot of talk. Sometimes action is the thing that comes next. We can flip that. We can make the high tech actionable in partnership with the ONC to be that mind share of here's what's happening boots in the ground. So what we do and what I do specifically is bring back a lot of real world stories, items, things that the China Public Policy Committee has come up with and is working through and has great examples of. And we talk through them and say, how can we make this better for the country and ultimately for the world? That's the high tech. So, so you mentioned a couple key words in there and, and you know, this has been going on now for well over a decade. You know, I'm surprised with that can do add to we haven't just fixed everything. But, you know, I guess there's still a little work to be done here. What would you say the top one or two, three issues besides obviously what we're dealing with with the pandemic and the public health? But from a pure HIT perspective, a digital health perspective, what would you say a couple of the top real issues that you all are trying to get your heads around are? Yep. Good question there. So, number one, uh, you alluded to it earlier with interoperability in statute, in law. The, the word application programming interface, API, is specifically called out in 21st century cures. Well, that is, that is a great you know, mechanism for connecting data sources and data sets together securely and uh, methodically. However, in practice, what are you going to do? Are you as a hospital simply going to allow XYZ app that's made in some foreign country uh, to connect to your electronic medical record system just haphazardly? Of course not. So there's logistical privacy and security concerns to make an interoperable ecosystem, one that works, but yet releases information, because again, that's the other aspect of information blocking under 21st century cures, which is you as a patient get to have your information as immediate as possible, oftentimes instantaneous. So how do we make it in a way that doesn't, doesn't accidentally or inadvertently cause any type of patient harm and or connect to whatever data source that you want to send your data to safely and securely. So that's number one, really enabling the interoperable ecosystem of tomorrow. And you, you can hear folks like Judy Faulkner and other brilliant folks speak about it in detail related to their products, but it's a problem. It, it, it has not, there's no better business bureau for health IT. There's no better business bureau for, for apps that are out there. And every vendor out there is trying to monetize data, right? And you as a health system, as a steward and custodian of those records have to do right by the patient. So that's number one. Second issue, privacy and security. Every state across this country is looking at different standards for either patient privacy or consumer privacy. And then of course, cybersecurity standards. Here in Texas, we have a much we have a much lower threshold for announcing a breach of information than the federal level. Federal level has a standard of 500. Texas, I believe, is a standard like two or 250, meaning patients that have been breached and you have to publicly disclose. Things like that, how do we reconcile? So that me as the University of Texas, as I'm doing business with the University of California from a healthcare perspective, and I'm now dealing with the California Consumer Protection Act, the CCPA, how do I modify my business practices to actually construct business and act business and share patient information safe, safely and securely. There's no rules of the road for that, right? 
Third thing that we are looking at heavily, and I give a lot of credit to the FDA and the Office of Civil Rights for coming to the table and actually acknowledging they've got to do a better job here, and they're partnering with ONC on this, is medical device security. Right now, medical devices no longer are the old Holter device you take home or are something you will walk into a patient room only. It's software, right? Medical device as a service. And you have these other medical apps that are being certified by the FDA and others that actually have CPT codes you can charge for. Great, sleep apnea, other things. But what is the regulation for those when still today, cybersecurity guidance is voluntary. It's not mandatory. There are no minimum standards of the road, which is something that Chime Public Policy has advocated for years now. However, I do give, again, a lot of credit to the FDA and others for really taking a hard look at that, saying, how do we do this in a way that doesn't disrupt the ecosystem, allows for innovation, but yet keeps things safe and secure? So I would say those are the other topics that are percolating top of mind and dealing with what's coming down the pipe, which is true consumerization of healthcare. So, so obviously you're right there on the front lines, working with, with the, the folks in ONC and government officials, everything being what they need to be. And, and you know, one of those, one of those great leaders is uh, Dr. Mickey Tripathi, our new ONC. And, you know, you've been involved just long enough where you've got to see one ONC doing their thing. And now you've got another one. And I can't remember now how total, I think this will be the eighth one uh, in those positions. You know, getting to work with Mickey, and I, I've been on several boards with him, just he's kind of like you. He's cut from the same stone. He just wants to get that job done. He wants to really kind of push towards finish lines. You know, getting to work with him and seeing a new leader transition at the beginning of this year, what, what do you see coming out of ONC now? And what do you think his top initiatives and focus areas will be over his, over his tenure? Yeah, great question. So I would say that having had the honor of working alongside Dr. DeSalvo, um, and, and everybody uh, across the way, all the way to Mickey, you know, even with uh, Dr. Rucker, everybody, I, I, I get this distinct impression that the phenotype for an ONC coordinator is roll up your sleeves, make it happen, get it done. And even when, you know, we were dealing with Zika and the outbreak was Zika, and for some time there was no mandatory pregnancy status field in the electronic medical record. So we really couldn't tell you how many pregnant women were at risk for Zika. And Dr. DeSalvo rolled up her sleeves and got it done. Uh, and Dr. Rucker did the same thing even uh, you know, two years ago as we're then facing other pandemics and other outbreaks. And now here we are with Mickey. It's that never say die attitude. And I just, I, I really appreciate that. And even if, you know, as a plug, if you look at the summer when we, when Chime had the honor of, of you know, really interviewing all of the ONC coordinators in one shot, you could see that on a, on a you know, the Brady Bunch screen of all of them, that their persona and their just amazing approach to the industry has what's gotten us here. So working alongside someone like Mickey is an honor and, and it's fun. And I would say the ONC team, if you if you as listeners do not know them, get to know them. Everybody from Steve Posnack to Elise to everybody, these folks are truly heroes doing it on a shoestring budget and making it happen. And so Mickey, as being the conductor of a symphony per se, uh, really is in there to galvanize. And what I what I appreciate is his pragmatic approach. And so let's take public health as an example. We had a very short charge from the administration to say, we need public health uh, recommendations turned around specifically to the Biden administration. And we have like 45 days to do it, right? 45 days in government is like a two hour meeting in the real world, right? Like, like really, like, like you're gonna turn something around that significant to the secretary, but we did. Right, HITAC was able to give those recommendations to Mickey, ONC added their, their flavor on top of it and handed it over and it was very well received. 
that's power, right? That is that is determination. That's getting it done. And I'm so pleased to see the ONC coordinator really helping to do exactly their job, coordinate across federal government, making things happen and getting it done. And so, you know, whether it's part of trying public policy, whether it's part of the high tech, whether it's all the other things I do that intersect with the agencies, it's this it's this never say die attitude you have to take to the table. And that's what makes it fun. So so with that being said, I mean, obviously, it's just a get it done group. And I love that you brought up the, the summer program and hearing all of them. What was funny is it's the first time all of them talk to each other as well, even in the preparatory calls. And you would think that would be almost like a, you know, a little collegial group that kind of hangs out with the beatings that they often take in the public world. But it was the first time all of them got together. And were, you're right. There was a common theme. And that was, you know, every one of them came in with the mindset of they were going to try to do good and try to make a positive difference. And I love that about, about that group of people. It's bipartisan, right? It, it crosses administrations and the noise and the, the, the rhetoric you hear on television sometimes that's just infuriating does not translate in health IT. We're, it, you, you don't miss a beat skipping administrations. And so it's amazing that politics has never entered the conversation. It, it is always about what's right for the patient and what's good medicine. And, and that's I personally could not deal with a partisan situation. It's totally nonpartisan. And that's what I respect most about it. You know, it's funny. One of the things that Karen DeSalvo said, though, during that time, she said, if you had 40 people come in your office during that day, you might come out with 40 different opinions on one specific item. You know, we, were all, we always try to be one of those strong voices and opinions. And you are part of our public policy committee made up of volunteers giving probably hundreds and hundreds of hours every year fighting for what's right. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think, you know, in, in complement to what ONC is, what do you think some of the top issues that we now, and at a really practical level, what are some of the top issues that the Public Policy Steering Committee and, and really the tacticians like you making a difference in healthcare are trying to address today? Yeah, well, Russ, you know, I give a lot of credit to, to you and the Chime Board and Chime Leadership Team for taking on these really audacious issues like EPCS, electronic prescription and controlled substances, right? I mean, we are seeing now the affect of what's been like three, four years now since Chime launched the EPCS task force and, and brought physicians and clinicians and, and uh, CIOs together to figure out actual meaningful ways and look at the reduction of opioid uh, abuse across the country and what it's caused downstream conversations to occur. So to, to me, that's where the Chime Public Policy Committee is most powerful, is attacking these very meaty, multi-pronged, multi-dimensional issues and saying, okay, we're gonna keep peeling back the onion until we get to the core of it. That takes leadership, that takes vision, that takes a, like I've been talking about, a never say die attitude. And it takes people who actually understand the content of what it is. You know, what I appreciate about the public policy committee is that you've got CMIOs on there, you've got physicians straight up there, you've got leaders there, you've got CIOs like myself, so you come with a, with a melting pot of ideas to the table saying, here's all the different ways that we're seeing it. And it's not just acute care hospitals. It's not just academic health care like my situation. You've got long-term care. You've got others, ambulatory care only. Where are we on the continuum of care for health care for a respective issue like EPCS? Other issues that I, I really respect that, that China continues to try to tackle, again, this unique patient identifier, looking at issues like that, looking at issues ar around phys physician burnout, 
all these components that that health IT, right? That healthcare technology, which is which is symbiotic with just delivery of care to patients, can attack. And so Chime now becomes a fulcrum to rally and galvanize an industry around something like EPCS or similar issues to say, how do we attack this? The other thing I appreciate is bringing the other groups to the table. It's amazing a Chime letter to say the Congress can get sign-ons from the AMA, the ANA, AHIMA, all these other groups, because we bring a, a focus of topic to the conversation that is relevant, that has actual data points behind it, that has health systems large and wide, small and wide, to say, here's what we're seeing and what we need help with. And it really does move the needle. One of the things I really appreciate most is, is interacting with some of the offices on the Hill, particularly, right? The staffers, which are all brilliant. These people are all brilliant, uh, regardless of what the, what the news may say, they're all smart. And it's amazing when you say, well, you know, Chime has this much data on XYZ topic. Their first thing is, oh man, can I see that? Not, oh, I, I don't know if I can trust that or that's not relevant to me. It's, oh, wow, that's, that's like the gold standard. That tells you exactly the power of, of what we have to offer to the table, which is our, our opinions, our perspectives, our data points, and more importantly, where rubber meets the road, where the clinicians are interacting with the patients. That's the power of public policy. Well, it's funny because that's exactly where the, the leading into this next subject, I was going to use those words where the rubber hits the road. There was never a probably greater time uh, during my entire lifespan and definitely yours, which is a little bit younger, where the rubber hit the road harder than during COVID. And, you know, everybody flexed to telehealth and other things, but you did some other stuff to really be the innovative leader that you are and really kind of questioning the status quo, which is kind of one of those rules of the revolution. You always question the status quo and you react at speeds that are really crazy. I'd love to hear a few of your thoughts and the way you address some of the unique challenges there during these COVID times. Absolutely. And so Russ, you know, you, you have a really good section, couple sections at the Chime Bootcamp that, you know, most, most recently I had the honor of serving alongside you in Salt Lake City to really, you know, re-listen to. And, and it's exactly that. It's taking advantage of the new technologies coming down the pipe, you know, and preparing for things like artificial intelligence and true machine learning. And so with that, one of the reasons and one of the abilities we had here at UT Austin to go fast was the ability to, to decouple yourself from legacy systems. So what does that mean? Investments in cloud technologies, looking at ways of being multi-pronged and multi-agile and, and really being able to stand up systems in a very development process mindset. So where you almost become a product uh, organization versus uh, just an IT services organization. So with that, we were able to set up our own contact tracing system where again, we're now doing contact tracing uh, on behalf of the Austin Public Health beyond UT Austin for the city of Austin. We also are, are one of two major vaccine hubs for all of Central Texas, serving two and a half million people and all the technology that was in, involved there. And then three, from a dynamics perspective, able to look at things like 3D printing and others to alleviate materials bottlenecks like PPE shortages and others and, and printing our own N95 masks. All these things were pipe dreams you know, 24 months ago, but because of the investments we had made prior to that, and over the past you know, 18 months leading into what we didn't know was gonna happen was a pandemic, we were able to shake and bake. And then I was able to help other organizations out to get out of their encumbrances because they hadn't had the time to put into those investments. The other thing that's important is the partnership with the vendor ecosystem. I have to give a lot of credit to the EMR vendors, all of them, uh, the major health IT vendors, the VARs that are out there, 
uh, for coming together and, and trying to help because has anybody ever gone to any of them before the pandemic said, guess what? I'm going to move my entire practice to your telemedicine platform in, oh, 48 hours, which we did, right? No, you usually were doing it drip by drip, a couple hundred appointments a month. And now suddenly you're in the thousands a day, you know, banking on it to consumer experience to actually be somewhat passable while everybody is terrified about COVID-19. That's not easy. That takes a lot a lot of coordination, a lot of partnership, and a lot of never say die attitude. So those are some of the dynamics at UT Austin that we're able to galvanize. Again, a lot of it, I give credit to the culture of the organization, the, you know, what starts here changes the world mindset. But at the end of the day, it, it was incumbent upon the leadership team, you, us as CIOs, the, the community rallying together for a common cause, what we're, we're still doing right now, and driving an outcome that's, uh, that's good medicine. Well, you, you, you mentioned the University of Texas, so I'm going to jump now into possibly the most controversial topic ever discussed on this podcast series. I mean, it is truly a sensitive topic for so many out there, and that is the University of Texas and that other little school in Oklahoma leaving <laughs> for the SEC, literally <laughs> vacating the Big 12, which was really the Big 10, um, and uh, and moving on, I, I just thoughts on them heading east, maybe not physically, but at least virtually. Yeah, you know, first of all, I'm really glad to see that we will be reinstituting the UT versus Aggie uh, Thanksgiving game. I miss those days. I miss the days of seeing Major Applewhite at center uh, throwing against the Aggies. Um, I, I miss those days, right? I miss the days of Ricky Williams just, you know, playing smash mouth ball and just running it down their throat. I mean, that to me just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. So I'm, I am thrilled we're back in the SEC. I, I do think it's going to be interesting watching the the evolution of the other conferences. I, I feel like the Pac-12 has an ability right now if they were to partner with what's remaining of the Big 12 to to maybe create a Western conference that could rival maybe the SEC. But the reality of the situation is that you look at Texas, you look at Florida, you look at these Southern states, uh, again, put the, the, put the, the, the hysteria on the, of the news aside because I find a lot of that to be nonsense. These are good people, good states, good schools turning out great students and great athletes. It's exciting. It's exciting to see UT part of that sphere. And I'll tell you, it's going to be something seeing Bama back at DKR uh, when it's on a regular schedule like it used to be back, uh, back in the day. Uh, with Tom Landry and others, that's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. Well, there, there's actually a health IT reason for asking that question, even though it's a little bittersweet for me, a fan of the old SEC and Big 12 and basically seeing uh, my alma mater heading, heading to play all those other teams over. Well, I, by the way, I'm really excited about it because I live in Atlanta, so I'll actually get to see them play again in person. But the reason I ask this question is obviously this kind of disruptive change, these mergers, these acquisitions, this constant chaotic change going on is happening in healthcare as well. And, and you've made transitions. You, you follow, you know, many of us follow all the careers of great leaders like you. And that is, is watching the changes that you make at different times. You know, how do we make this disruptive change work? How do we help people through this? I mean, change is easy, except if it's happening to you. Love to hear some of your thoughts and advice on, on really grappling with this kind of disruptive change. Yeah, no, great question. Um, and so I'd say it's, it's, it's a three-pronged approach. Number one is 
actually understanding and accepting that people go through change at different rates of velocity. Not everybody goes through change quickly, is able to turn the page. There's a grieving process in some situations when there's change and there's an ability to adapt, right? So you, it, as you are going through changes and as you as a leader are taking on new things, making sure you don't leave your staff behind inadvertently and the people around you behind inadvertently, including your own personal family, which I, I tell you is as important as your professional side when you're making changes, is, is critical. Two, I would say being very clear and very precise about what the change is and what it isn't. You know, I had a mentor at one point tell me that, you know, Aaron, in the absence of information, information will be created. Meaning that if you're not precise and prescriptive with exactly what's going on and you're able to articulate that in a manner that makes sense, people are gonna make up whatever story they want. And people are gonna put whatever lens on something that they want, good or bad or ugly. You have to be able to evangelize and explain it and make sure that folks understand it in a way that is, is commonly understood. We saw this play out with COVID-19. Uh, we saw it firsthand when we were putting out uh, smart apps to, for folks to measure their own temperature. We inadvertently assumed that everybody would have an Android or iOS device when we put out this app. No, a lot of people have a smartphone that they just simply do uh, normal web pages on. So we had to put a web responsive app out immediately to address that. If you don't think about equity by design up front, you're gonna leave people out. Last but not least in all of this is making sure that as you look forward, you're not forgetting the past. So if you're going into something new and you're taking on a new organization or organizations merging with yours or whatever, being respectful of the history as to why is so critically important because healthcare is built over decades, built over centuries. It's not a one and done or I created a widget, I'm creating a better widget or hey, I'm announcing a new iPhone. It's, hey, this is the past, we respect the past, we're now looking forward, respectful of the past. That's how healthcare is done, it's done in transaction. Now, if you're too, not careful enough, you can also go too slow if you're too worried about that, you have to actually make the change. But as long as you're cognizant of those factors, usually you can overcome any type of inadvertent resistance and bring a team and a coalition of the willing forward. Yeah, it's interesting. It was a quote I heard a while back. I'm not even sure where I heard it. And that is, you know, as leaders, especially in these chaotic times, you can't create and guarantee certainty. But what you can do is try to create clarity for people to understand what change is really occurring. And it sounds like if you add your three things up, that's exactly the approach that you kind of take. I love that. Well, a couple last questions here as our time gets wrapping up. And one of those is, and really is kind of part and parcel to everything you've talked about today, is we are in an industry of rapid disruptive change. And we talk about fourth revolution economics, we talk about disruptive change agents, but also technologies. We, you know, it almost gets thrown out kind of cavalier at this point, digital health and AI and all these things like you could go down to Best Buy and buy this stuff in a box and just bring <laughs> it to your healthcare if it was just that easy. But we really are in an industry, not just industry, a world economy and disruption. What do you think is going to happen with healthcare over some period of time? I'll let you pick the time that's there, however many years or decades or whatever it is you want, where you really think these are the things will be the attributes of modern healthcare moving forward. Absolutely. So I think right now we're standing at a major pivot for healthcare technology. And I know we've always said that, 
But think about it. We are 10, 12 years now out from the, most of the hospital systems digitizing their medical records. You have unfathomable amounts of data now uh, in major compute arenas, uh, the giant cloud providers, whatnot. You have analytic, analytic abilities today with microservices we didn't have in the past. And you're able to dial up compute on demand from some of the biggest vendors and have an availability and a reliability index we've never seen before. So if you put all those together in a transactional business that is healthcare, right? We transact trust. That's exactly what we do. We transact trust. Now you're able to transact at, at speeds unbelievable to the world and unbelievable to care. So care of the future, and I'm not talking about a horizon of a decade. I'm talking about a few years, maybe five years from now, Russ, where you're going to see the clinician armed with so much data at their fingertips that's actionable, giving them reference points as to, hey, have you considered this? Think about it. When was the last time you opened up one of those old Atlas maps that used to be in the backseat pocket of your parents' car? And when they were lost in the middle of nowhere, they're, they're scrambling around for that one app or one map that they, they picked up at the at the at the you know guest services station crossing the state line. You don't do that anymore. You just go to Google and you type in where the heck am I going, or your car tells you where to go, or you have a Tesla that drives you there and you don't even touch the steering wheel. I, I, touch the steering wheel if you have a Tesla, people don't drive without your hands. But my point is technology is an enabling and automation layer that we've never seen before. And clinicians, especially now that we've seen it with the power of COVID-19 and others and how important data at your fingertips is, are, are absolutely more apt to accept the, the, the recommendations and others coming out of these digital apps, these digital clinical decision support tools moving forward. Why do you think uh, you, know, you have a large company like Nuance doing ambient listening? Because ambient listening, they realize the data of, of what's going on in an operating room or physician office can be harvested and giving you decision points as a clinician to take it to the next level. Why do you think Microsoft went and spent you know, billions of dollars on them? Because they're no fools. They can see the power of the data too. So that's where we've got to be as CIOs and really become the digital officer of the future to know how to enable that information to actually translate to better patient care and, and overall good medicine. So, so if this is right, and we, we kind of had, this is the fourth economic revolution coming up. We went from mass power to mass production to mass information. And now what you're inferring is we're moving into the mass intelligence era. That's, that's kind of an interesting premise then for us sitting where we are here today. As we hopefully come out of COVID, this new future you're talking about, what, what do you think we need to focus on even really super short term? If you say this is three to five years, what do we need to focus on in the next six to 12 months? And I'm talking about the industry. I'm talking about Chime. What are some of the things you want us to focus on to really not just enable, but to accelerate that change? Absolutely. So first of all, we are missing an entire spectrum of data as it relates to anything public health, uh, student health, pediatric health. And it's always been a gap. But without the true continuum of care and, and looking at the, the longitudinal patient record. And what do I mean by that? Aaron goes from inpatient hospital to, hosp to, to rehab, to maybe hospice in, in, in late stage of life. He's at home getting home care. All the data, all those systems, all those things today, for the most part, are disconnected. So can Chime bring a, a coalition of the willing together to figure out in one of these major continuing resolution spending packages that there's dollars to enable LTACs? 
dollars to enable long-term care and ambulatory care, dollars to enable public health to be able to transact away from fax machines. Number two thing, we as CIOs, as IT departments, need to start taking a hard look at the data repositories that we have and making sure that it's clean and good data. Do you really think you're going to build some fancy machine learning algorithm or artificial intelligence algorithm on data that does not transact, is not normalized, and does not make sense? The answer is absolutely not. And most CIOs would say, man, I am way too busy in my day job to worry about how dirty data is. I'm telling you, if you're not worried about it now, it's the new technical debt. It will bite you in the rear end in a couple of years when all the other health systems are launching new protocols and new, new ways of being able to identify patients upfront and you're left in the dust. Because right now, most health systems are concerned about leakage. They're worried about what happened over COVID-19. That's not going to change. And patients are wiser. They now know they have options. They're experienced in telemedicine. They now know, you know what? If I want the top creme de la creme experience, I'll just fire up this app and get it right now on demand. If you as a health system aren't seeing those trends now and preparing for that and readying yourself, you're gonna be left in the dust. Last but not least, can you activate your vendor community to propel you forward. You cannot boil the ocean, nor can you go higher the ocean itself. You just can't. But what you can do is put together the vendor community, much like the Chime Foundation team has done and others, to say, how do we band together and actually help propel us forward as if the hospitals had done it themselves? There's no reason to reinvent the wheel, but there is reason to couple it with something that makes sense for your respective geography and locale and drive forward a better product and a better outcome for the patients. That's what we should be doing over the next six to 12 months. And that's what I look for Chime to be doing, which is to really activate the ecosystem to prepare for that fourth industrial wave. Wow, what a, what a plug for something here. And that is this concept of technical debt. And I was thinking, well, maybe you need a technical, you know, credit score, like we have personal credit scores. And then I thought, wait a second, we already got it. You helped build it. It's our digital health most wired program. And you get that score. And those scores are going to be coming out soon. So maybe we need to do some branding and marketing and start calling it people's uh, technical credit score on top of that as well. That's pretty I like amazing. That. I like that. And you saw, you know, you see organizations like Class and others do that with third-party risk assurance. Perhaps you're right. Perhaps there's an opportunity there for trying to say, hey, it's what it is. The most wired awards resonate. They resonate because it galvanizes internally an IT team to figure out well, what are we good at? And oh man, we gotta focus on this. And it tells the external world that, look, this isn't an award for award's sake, right? Too many awards are out there that are just nonsense. This thing is a demonstrable, we do this, it's audited, and it's, and it's a gold standard of, hey man, we, we, are, we are tending to the fences and we're making things happen. It's not all we're doing, but it's definitely a, a feather in the cap. So I think Russ, you're right onto something. Well, I'll just ask you this last question and, and feel free to hip pocket it if you need to, but is there any other big things you want to let us know about, big announcements, big uh, ideas, anything else? We also reserve the right of, uh, with all of our speakers, especially you, to come back and give us another announcement if you wanted to. I appreciate that, Russ. So I, I will say this, respectful of, of communication protocols and whatnot, um, that uh, there will be uh, some big announcements that I will be making here in the very near future. Uh, with, with major respect to organizations and to my staff and to, and to so many people along the way. Um, I'm thrilled to, to, to announce some stuff here very shortly, but I just, just timing purposes. So I would say, Russ, I will take your rain check uh, to come talk about in detail, in finite, explicit items, uh, what's going on where, but uh, rest assured, I'm not going anywhere with Chime. And uh, I intend to, to carry the, ban the banner forward 
and uh, you know, make sure that as we transition, UT transitions to SEC uh, country, that I transition to SEC country as well. So I look forward to it. Pretty awesome. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. You truly are one of the most prolific volunteers in this industry, giving, giving, giving. Uh, I used to think I, I was crazy in this stuff. You, you left me in the dust and so many others. We just greatly appreciate your attitude, why you do it. You do it for the right reasons. You don't do it for self-proclamation. You do it to make sure patients are cared for better. Thank you for all your service. Thank you for your sacrifice to our industry. Russ, thank you. And I appreciate Chime and everything you guys have done for me. So I look forward to continuing to serve. We'd also like to thank you for joining us for this episode of our Digital Health Leaders Podcast. Special thanks to our sponsor for today's program, LK, one of our wonderful Chime Foundation firms. You can visit this website, our website, chimecentral.org forward slash media for this program and all of our podcasts and other programs. For now, please stay vigilant, stay safe during these difficult times. If you haven't, please consider getting vaccinated. It's not just for your sake, but for the people around you that you care about. Take care, be safe, and God bless.